All right. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining. My name is Joel Bork. I am the host for the very first IronNet January edition of the Cyber Lookback. We're extremely excited to be bringing this to you here on LinkedIn Live, Twitch, and YouTube. And I'm extremely excited to introduce the gentlemen who are here with me and who are also going to be delivering the content for our Threat Intel Lookbacks today and monthly moving forward. So the first is someone whose team I most recently had the pleasure to work on, and he's a skilled analyst, an extremely competent threat hunter, and was actually recently given the opportunity to join the new threat analysis team here at IronNet. Brett Fitzpatrick, thanks so much for going live with us today. Absolutely. The pleasure is mine. Thanks, Joel. Hey, you got it. All right. Next up, this gentleman who I've had the pleasure of interviewing, I think a couple of times now, he really could be a one-man cyber special ops show of his own. He's also the new threat analysis lead here at IronNet. Peter Rudzinski, thanks for being here. Thanks, Joel. Awesome. Now, unless you guys are living off the grid, you've heard of the solar winds and sunburst attacks that elite Russian adversaries have deployed across the Orion supply chain. Now, in this month's Cyber Look Back, we are going to be streaming with these SOC experts and threat researchers to unpack the latest and greatest analysis of this egregious attack. But before we do so, we're going to talk about a couple other pieces of news that may have been buried under all of the noise here in the last few months. This includes distraction techniques and coin mining. It's also new vulnerabilities in VMware and also TrickBot UEFI capabilities. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Let's start with the crypto attacks. We're seeing multiple crypto-related attacks coming from two separate angles. Dig into these two different angles for us a little bit, Peter. Sure. Thanks, Joel. Basically, right about November, end of November, start of December, Microsoft published a report that outlined some new techniques that they observed the uh, Bismuth APT group leveraging, basically to hide in the shadows, they installed coin miners, Monero specifically coin miners, that misled defenders thinking that this was a non-sophisticated threat, that this was just a standard coin mining incident and not actually an APT exfiltrating sensitive data and maintaining strong and hidden persistence. And so throwing the defenders off the scent, once they removed the coin miners and and thought that they had cleared the breach, they would stop looking at that host and uh, move along. And so, uh, yeah, Microsoft put out some good reporting indicating this new technique and how to basically detect it and what to look out for. So Yeah, I mean, it's clever and it's smart, right? If you think you've remediated it, it was just a simple coin miner like we've seen so many times in the past. Why any further? Now, the second one is in regards to, I believe, the massive uptick in Bitcoin price, right? We're seeing, I think, 37,000 per Bitcoin at this point. Now, it comes back to people not securing their wallets, but we're also seeing a new rat. Can you dig in a little deeper for that on that angle as well, Peter? Yeah, there has definitely been a renewed interest in cryptocurrency. To be honest, this reminds me quite a bit of 2017, and I am wondering when we're going to start seeing articles outlining some of the fraud that's in, the, in this as well, because I don't see the precipitous rise as legitimate, but who knows? Nonetheless, obviously, there's been a significant increase in attention to cryptocurrencies, and as such, the bad guys are paying attention too. And so what you're referring to is the electro rat. This actually came out uh, again in the beginning of December about when Bleeping Computer actually put out a pretty good article that outlines the capabilities of that uh, rat. Basically, the, the big key takeaways here are it's a, it's a Golang rat, so it's very flexible, can be deployed to many different platforms, but it was uh, essentially injected into legitimate electron applications and trojanized. So basically, you had the threat actors also pushing this particular trojan through social media and through other publications and such. 
So people were actually downloading what they thought were legitimate cryptocurrency management applications or trading platforms that they could, you know, exchange cryptocurrencies on. And ultimately their cryptocurrencies were stolen off of those. Yeah. That, you know, I think we're also seeing that, that huge uptick of newbie crypto traders at this point, jumping into the scene because we even see people like Robert Kiyosaki jumping into that investment and recommending it. So do your due diligence. If you are planning on going that route, secure your crypto wallets, make sure this doesn't happen to you. Thank you, Peter. So we're also seeing Russian actors use, and it seems like a lot of Russia lately, and I'm sure it's not just me, but we're seeing them use a new vulnerability in VMware. Brett, you mentioned you could give us a quick rundown on this and what it requires to exploit. Yeah, thanks, Joel. So it was a vulnerability uh, that the NSA put out, and you know it's some good old NSA putting out a uh, workaround. Seeing the timeline of uh, events lately of you know the Russians' solar winds breach, this is definitely you know a little interesting. This vulnerability got put out, and the way this works is that it requires a password authentication access into the web interface, and attackers can read unauthorized access and abuse federated account permissions. To basically build off of that, you know, if we can imagine that Russian threat actors were able to gain access into sensitive networks through their SolarWinds breach, it's likely that the reason we're observing them able to access these uh, web interfaces that are typically not exposed to the internet and that require permissions, it's largely due to the fact that they probably already had access to those networks through their SolarWinds breach and that they are now leveraging this VMware exploit to increase permission levels and get into segmented portions of the network that shouldn't be accessed. I think as our audience will hear here shortly, they're not just stopping at one back door. And that's what we should be nervous about is once they're in, what else are they capable of doing while they have access? All right. Next up on our list of recent, I guess, rediscoveries, maybe not rediscoveries, but back in the malware market is TrickBot. And it's back with new modules. So Peter, you've seen some of this. You've talked to us about what these modules mean. Can you tell us what they mean to private sector and potentially the public sector as these new modules are hitting the market? Yeah, so what you're referring to is, again, in the beginning of December, the Eclipsium group actually put out a very good report that broke down the new version of TrickBot, the new variant of TrickBot that was just observed a few weeks prior. And one of the remarkable pieces that they had pulled out of that particular version was new UEFI checks. It wasn't actual UEFI exploitation or uh, bootkit installation or anything like that, but it was uh, UEFI capable checks that basically looked at what version of UEFI the, the host had and potential exploitation avenues. That's you know not surprising that we didn't see the actual exploit code included because of the sort of modular nature of TrickBot already. They pull things down, they pull modules down on demand as necessary. And so the thought process here is that Essentially, as the TrickBot operators gain access into sensitive networks, they will leverage this module and deploy that on demand into these sensitive networks or high value networks that they want to remain hidden in and remain and obtain a very strong persistence mechanism. Obviously, this happened in the beginning of December. And, you know, as we'll get into, then the FireEye report came out about their breach and then the SolarWinds breach. And so, this kind of went largely undiscussed. And so I think it's it's going to be interesting to see over the next couple of months what the fallout is because everybody was looking over here. And when in reality, I think TrickBot being the largest botnet out there and probably the most prolific malware out there right now, it's very important to take a look at those capabilities and what's going on there. Now, talk to me a little bit more about what an organization can do to secure themselves against this. That's a big challenge. I mean, the first thing is obviously you shouldn't be getting affected with TrickBot. It's incredibly noisy. There's a lot of C2 published out there as block lists and things like that. And its uh, delivery mechanism is 
pretty standard through like infected word docs and things like that, phishing. So that would be my first recommendation because if, if you're trying to address this from the UEFI standpoint, it's, it is a challenge because really the only option is to to look at Secure Boot. You know, if you've already been infected, the best option is to look at Secure Boot and uh, enabling Secure Boot on your hosts, which essentially looks for signed drivers loaded into the BIOS and or the UEFI. And so that's not necessarily possible for every organization due to custom deployments and things like that. And so that can be a challenge to enable Secure Boot on all hosts. And so Honestly, I would say stop it before it happens because, yeah, UEFI stuff is, is tricky to find and tricky to deal with once it's once you have identified it. Let's go ahead. And if you gentlemen are ready, let's jump into our main event. So January look back, cyber look back. We are looking into December. And as you all know, and as everybody has heard of, the Sunburst and SolarWinds event that has been on everybody's mind is going to be part of this. Now, while there are still a ton of questions around what the actor's intent was, what was the end goal of installing these backdoors, we have a number of other insights which we can offer into this event. Now, Peter, first, before we get too far into the weeds, can you give us a quick background and debrief on this case? Yeah, I'll start off with just outlining a little timeline here. Basically, the uh, first reporting of this incident, although we didn't know it was related to this incident, was actually on December 8th when FireEye announced that they had lost control of their red teaming tools, essentially, and that they had indications that a threat actor had uh, obtained them and exfiltrated them. And so basically they published a report outlining what was stolen as well as how to search for any indicators of those tools being used in your networks, which was super helpful for defenders. And so I definitely applaud them for taking proactive action there of identifying, holy cow, we lost access or lost uh, control over these highly capable and very sophisticated red teaming tools. And we should let the community know not only how to identify the files through Yara signatures, but actually how to identify the network traffic through snort signatures, as well as a description, again, of what's going on there and what those capabilities are. So kudos to them for coming out and owning that. But obviously, that wasn't the end of it. On Sunday, that following Sunday after the 8th, the 13th, December 13th, FireEye then came out and published their full SolarWinds dump. And, and this is where basically they outline how the Russian threat actor was able to gain access to their network. And ultimately, that also led to them obviously disclosing the fact that this was a supply chain attack that affected thousands, potentially thousands of other companies. Once that report was released, everybody was sent into a flurry. I know Monday morning was crazy for, for us here at IronNet, just trying to figure out what had happened, what to do, what to, what to look for, and who was affected. But interestingly, with regard to the actual SolarWinds supply chain incident, uh, there were actually indications well back into October of 2019, first activity on the SolarWinds code repositories, basically. And so what you saw is the threat actor gained access to all these companies through a legitimate DLL that is packaged within an update for the Orion software platform. The Orion software platform is actually a network administration and management tool that can be deployed into networks. Obviously, given its nature, it has high levels of permission and visibility across the network. And so with that, it made for a perfect target for Trojanization. And essentially, they compromised that DLL, one of the DLLs packaged in there. And again, the first indications of this came well back in October 2019, when they just simply inserted code that created empty classes that proved to the threat actors that they were able to actually modify code and deliver it. And so one of the, the scary parts of that is through that testing, they were able to actually get these binaries signed. This DLL is signed, so it's completely legitimate. So from a defender's perspective, even if they were alerted to anything about this update or any traffic observed there, it is definitely 
a challenge to identify accurately that this was a threat actor due to the fact that assigned binary. And so, you know, in, in most defenders' eyes, that's that's a checkbox, good to go, safe and sound. But yeah, it's a, a definitely a tricky one there. So this particular threat or backdoor has been dubbed Sunburst, Solera Gates by Microsoft, Sunburst by FireEye. But basically, again, this only affected the Orion software tool itself. So once they inserted those classes, those empty classes, to prove that they actually could do this attack, that's when they started to, or sorry, I should say in March after that, that's when they started to actually stand up infrastructure and begin this operation. And, and once April, about, I think it was April 13th or so, rolled around, that's when they started to see the first indications of the update being you know, rolled out to customers, installed, and malicious communications uh, observed after that. Fantastic. Now, I want to take it back just a little bit, because once we got our hands on this and we started digging into the FireEye report, et cetera, there was a significant amount of anti-analysis checks that occurred. Now, Brett, would you, do you mind taking us through a few of those checks that this took in order to bypass detections? Yeah, 100%. So obviously, we know this is a very highly sophisticated threat actor, and operational security is going to be an, you know, one of the highest priorities you know, when they're performing execution. So when the backdoor first executes on the system, one of the first checks it's going to do is see if there's any analysis tools on that device. So you're thinking you know, antivirus suite, anything for, that can monitor security events or you know, what's going on in the system. So it has a list of security devices that it knows, and it's going to check to see if any of those services are found in that system. If it does find it, it's going to stop the execution, attempt to disable it if it can through the registry. So what it's going to do is it's actually going to set the registry value to four, which you know it doesn't disable it immediately. It's going to disable it on the next power cycle. Uh, but once the system reboots, that service should be disabled. And then it's going to retry and see if it can execute again. The next step it does is it's going to see when was the last time the .NET assembly for that DLL was actually, you know, last time it executed. If it was 12 to 14 days prior, you know, it's doing that two-week lockout period which you know, selects randomly between that interval of 12 days and 14 days. If it's waited that two-week period about, then it'll go to the next step. The next threshold would be, it's gonna repurpose two configs found in the businesslayer.dll config file. And those two settings is gonna be report watcher retry and report watcher postpone. If you see the report watcher retry set to three, then the malware has been deactivated and it's no longer gonna perform any network activity. FireEye did note though, that when they saw that this config value was set to three, uh, it didn't confirm that, you know, the threat actor just stopped right there and disabled the back door and didn't perform anything on the any other actions on the environment. That indicator right there alone does not mean that, you know, no other further malicious activity occurred. So, you know, you could still potentially that the actors got into the environment first, you know, put an implant there and then, you know, maybe disabled the back door at a later time. Now, we, we did have a couple of questions, Brett, before you move on. I, I know I'm cutting you kind of in the middle of what it does, but I think we got a good idea of how it's avoiding detections for some of those. and, and then. Also, forcing reboot before it moves forward. So let's answer the questions. Then I want to come back and, and get the rest of this description. We did have a question from Andrew. Andrew said, morning, thanks for the insight. Will this be recorded? Will it be available? Will a recording be available for this? The answer is yes. It'll be available on YouTube and then on this LinkedIn event. So if you want to send any of your other analysts to this to take a peek, feel free to do so. We also had another comment from Kent Kenenson. Any issues with compromised SolarWinds code embedded into other tools? As of now, there has not been any reporting of other SolarWinds tools that have been compromised. However, you know, it's impossible to say given the lack of reporting, it doesn't necessarily indicate there hasn't been. But I am quite confident that SolarWinds is doing a very deep 
scrub of everything that took place in their networks and everything that took place on their code bases. So keep your eyes peeled, but at this time, no, no reporting of any other uh, SolarWinds compromised tools. As we get into in the later part of this discussion, though, we'll talk about some other potential angles here of other compromised supply chain issues. Perfect. So in other words, hold your horses, Kent, we have some more good information coming your way. So, all right, back over to you, Brett. So quick recap, first check was for security tools. If blocked, the process or driver name is found, it will then pause and try again later. Next, the backdoor only executes if the file system's last write time for the .NET assembly is at least 12 or 14 days prior. Keep going through this with me. I mean, dig into the details. Yeah, so the next check that's going to happen is I uh, see what Active Directory domain it's part of. So it has a list of hard-coded Active Directory domains it looks for. You know, the speculation right now is that those are some internal SolarWinds domains so that, you know, if the backdoor is executed, like say a developer is compiling this code and, uh, you know, doing some tests, they don't want it obviously to run that backdoor on that developer system or, you know, any system for that matter within the SolarWinds enterprise. So they're going to first do that Active Directory domain check. And also just to make sure that it is a part of a Active Directory domain, because, you know, if the DLL is running in a sandbox, it's likely not going to be part of a domain or just, you know, I might tip off the defenders uh, per se. So once it goes to that, it's going to do a final check and it's just going to confirm that there's internet connectivity. So it's going to try to resolve the domain api.solarwinds.com. If that doesn't resolve, it's not going to, you know, completely stop the backdoor and disable it. It's just going to stop it from that execution right now and it's just going to try again at a later time. I mean, the robustness of the checks that they built into this, I mean, we rarely see it to this extent. Unfortunately, I feel like now that this is available and they understand how well this worked, we're going to be seeing a lot more in the future. Do you gentlemen agree? Yeah, 100%. And just, you know, it goes just to the level of sophistication of how actors are paying more attention to operational security, covering their checks, and their attack range is definitely getting greater as well. Yeah. Now, now let's say that passes all these checks, right? You're bypassing endpoint protections. You're you're checking to see if it's part of the solar winds domain. You're checking against the block list, and you have internet connectivity. What happens next? All right. So this is like you know once you pass all that checks, this is where it's going to finally attempt to find that C2 server. So it's going to perform DNS tunneling. I know in the wild we were uh, some people were calling it DGA. I would say it's a little bit of a combination of both, where the SLD of the uh, domain that's spring of that uh, avsvmcloud.com is going to be generated based off of three values. The MAC address of the host, the domain name it's part of, and then the machine GUID registry value. So that gets uh, put into a hash. And the reason uh, we're calling it DNS tunneling is because it is excluding some, you know, some data. It's excluding the, that domain name that's part of. And to me, you know, that like that is the DNS tooling because, you know, it's getting one, it's ex explaining the data and two, that that IP address that gets back, that gets resolved, that domain name is a command so that we know it, it is performing some type of command and control. Um, and the command to get back is either going to tell the backdoor to perform a kill switch activity. So just, you know, disable itself and perform a cleanup, sleep and ping and wait for a command at a later time. If it comes back with an IP address that it doesn't know part of its IP address ranges, it'll just try again later. And then the last is uh, active. And Peter, do you want to talk about what happens when the backdoor gets set to uh, active mode? Before we get there, though, Brett, you, I mean, you hit on something that, that was huge. So, Peter, you actually recently wrote an article about how FireEye claimed that the C2 communications in this breach were DGA or domain generation algorithm, where in reality, as Brett mentioned, it was actually DNS tunneling communications. Can you dig into the difference just a tad more and tell us why it matters? Yeah, this is very tricky. And to be honest, it is at this point a very semantical discussion, but I do think it's an important discussion to have. And the distinction is, is definitely subtle, but again, it, it makes a difference here, especially when it comes to threat hunting. 
So specifically here, you have, as Brett was mentioning, you have a portion of the DNS query, which was an MD5 hash of the MAC address and the machine GUID. And so that part is non-reversible. However, there was a, another portion of the, the domain, the subdomain label that was included here that was encoded, not hashed. And so you could actually reverse that encoding and obtain the value of the data that was included in there. And so as such, that is inherently tunneling data across DNS, which is DNS tunneling. However, even further, if we look at the MITRE attack matrix definitions for what DGA is, which there isn't a, a technique as explicitly outlined for DNS tunneling, which I think there should probably be. For DGA, if you look at that, everything that MITRE talks about is with regard to maintaining and establishing a backup command and control mechanism. And so when we talk about DGA, the intent of DGA is to avoid block lists and evade detections so that you aren't using a static domain to communicate with your C2 servers. And so if a defender comes in and says, hey, cool, avsvmcloud.com is bad, and they block that, this communication channel is shut down regardless of what subdomain labels are used. And so in this case, again, this does not maintain or establish some backup communication channel for C2. And as such, it sort of negates the ability for it to be DGA. Now, the argument is, unfortunately, that, and, and I, you know, I can see this portion, is that it is a dynamically generated subdomain label. And that is absolutely accurate. But I would argue that every single DNS tunneling communication is also dynamically generated using an algorithm. You can't just take arbitrary data and shove it into a DNS query. You can't have spaces. You can't have certain characters, right? So as such, it needs to be algorithmically encoded into some mechanism that then the C2 server can reverse and understand. And so it's sort of this, again, you can see how it's a very semantical discussion and we're getting into very specific things, but the impact is huge when it comes to threat hunting and threat sharing specifically. So if you have hunters looking for DGA and they're expecting that this DGA is simply a backup communication mechanism, or I should say backup C2 rendezvous communication, instead of actual DNS carrying data, they're going to address those two things differently. And so it's important for defenders to look at this and understand exactly what's going on with the behaviors. And then furthermore, when they are sharing those behaviors across environments, it's even more critical to accurately identify those behaviors at hand so that when we are sharing this threat information that isn't maybe necessarily easily signaturized, in this case it was, but in other cases it might not be, it's important to identify that behavior accurately and completely so that other defenders across other companies and other networks understand what you're actually sharing with them. In this case, tunneled data that has a dynamic response that indicates the bot's actual commands and what they should be doing. That is DNS tunneling. Fantastic. I, I don't think you could have described that any better because, I mean, we see it all the time. A DGA algorithm is extremely noisy with tons of randomly generated domains, whereas this was a single domain with different subdomain labels, X-filling, and actually it was bidirectional communication. So I'll let you just jump right into that. You know, back to Brett's question, what happened when the back door gets placed in active mode? Sure. And so once the operators have decided, yep, we want to target this particular network and we would like to go interactive at that point, they would send back a particular IP address that indicated that they wanted to go interactive. And then after that, the next query that was uh, sent to the C2 server would get a CNAME response. And that CNAME response was actually the domain name that they would communicate to the second stage C2, essentially. And so in that CNAME response, they were able to get a domain and an IP address. They used the domain to actually uh, communicate over HTTPS, interestingly, which is somewhat surprising to me, to be honest, is that it appeared that cert validation was not 
honored or performed in this particular malware. And so man in the middling is, is very possible here. I have some suspicions that it's possible that they did that for the reason of corporate networks that have TLS proxies and such. And so they didn't want to have any TLS issues that, that arose. And given their attempts to really remain hidden, they thought, let's hide in the noise of HTTP more than let's hide in, in the encryption of HTTP, right? And so they said, well, we don't care if people can break into this. We're just going to make it look as legitimate as possible. And they definitely did. These communications would be difficult to identify as malicious unless you really paid close attention. So, you know, they figured, let's make sure our payloads look legit so that if encryption happens or decryption, I should say, happens, they don't, they don't care. That's my speculation. I'm not exactly sure on that one, but, you know, that's what we expect. As far as the capabilities of this C2, it was fairly standard, not uh, hugely variable from what we typically see. You saw your normal information gathering capabilities and exfiltration. They had uh, registry read capabilities as well as modification capabilities. So this is likely to understand a little bit more about the host as well as to, we've also seen persistence that's been established in the registry as well. So it's possible that that's an angle there. And then they obviously had file read, write, and execute capabilities. So Again, standard RAT capabilities there. And then they had the capabilities to reboot the host and everything. So pretty normal to see all of that there. But it was cool to see FireEye actually enumerate all of the different symbols and numbers that they use to actually make those uh, particular jobs kick off and things like that. So I definitely recommend taking a peek at the initial FireEye report as well as the additional FireEye report that came out after, a couple of days after, that outlines all of this because they, they really did a great job digging in. Obviously, FireEye has a phenomenal malware analysis team and that's probably where a lot of this came from. But kudos to them again for putting out uh, pretty good reporting on this so that defenders like us can understand this better. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it's been interesting to me that most organizations are are relying on the same way of detecting these behaviors as they have in the past, and they go straight back to the signature. Now, you mentioned this was easily identifiable in signatures because they just used that one domain. And it was impressive that they got away with it for so long, right? By just using one domain and they used a, a very, you know, they registered the domain a long time ago so that would bypass a lot of those controls. Now, there's been some manual work also in regard to analyzing SAML abuse that's occurred. But having dug into it from a few analytic companies' perspectives who've written articles about this, it boiled down to how they're able to detect it. It's still boils down to a signature. Now, Brett, you and Peter have both had and spent time working with our data scientists here at IronNet on our DNS tunneling analytic. Brett, can you speak to our audience a little bit about how that analytic works and then how it was able to detect the Sunburst C2 activity when it's walking by most other detection capabilities? So our DNS tunneling analytic, again, you know, this is behavioral detection, not signature detection. And it's going to go over all your DNS logs or any DNS traffic that's crossed via our iron sensor. You know, when it goes over those DNS logs or the, the DNS traffic, it's going to look at the DNS queries per se. Specifically, you know, whether it's like text records or uh, in this case, when they're trying to pull the A records, it's going to look at the just the domain that's, that's queried. You know, it, it doesn't look suspicious. It doesn't look like DNS tunneling. And then, you know, like Peter was saying, in DNS tunneling, the actor is attempting to exfil data, right, or uh, do command and control. So the subdomain labels, labels, if it's exfil, you know, it just should be some type of encoded data or some type of entropy that's going to make it look suspicious. And depending if it's exfiling data, what's the length of those SLDs? Are they attempting to use all 255 bytes? So looking at all those DNS queries, if we can see a bunch of DNS queries made to the same domain and they have different SLD labels, then that looks suspicious to us. And specifically in this case, that's exactly what we saw. And uh, our analytic detected that. Yeah. So and it was interesting to see. So our DNS tunneling analytic was able to detect it in multiple environments. 
And then that's just our analytics capability. On top of that, we have what's called Iron Dome, which is a correlation engine. So as soon as one person would rate that malicious or suspicious, every other participant would be notified, right? And this just shows the efficacy that if, if we're detecting it and we're correlating it, that moving forward into the future, that behavioral analytics, A, they work, and that being able to correlate them and share that information in an anonymized way in real time it is going to help significantly when you can get one person to analyze it, rate it, and it will disperse that information. So really, really cool stuff. Thank you, Brett, for sharing. Now, in the past few weeks, it, it was also determined on top of the C2 activity, on top of the, the standard backdoor, you know, everybody was questioning, well, is there anything else? And it was discovered that, I quote, the mal that an additional DLL was installed and the malware could potentially slip even manual analysis since the code implemented in the legitimate DLL is innocuous. This second DLL and backdoor was named Supernova. Peter, what have we so far learned about this second backdoor? Yeah, Supernova is a, oof, you know, this, this just made it all <laughs> even worse because there was speculation due to the fact that, you know, this is a second DLL that has been infected, but in this case was not signed. And so as such, there's speculation that if the you know original threat actor who is suspected to be Russia, if the original threat actor is able to sign their DLLs and deliver them, why did they use the second capability that uh, was unsigned? And so it, you know, it made people speculate that this is actually a second APT group that was in, in, also in the SolarWinds networks and able to, to modify code. And so that's a bit surprising to see. And it definitely threw us all for a loop during that, you know, coming weeks after all this, this went down. But basically, it was very similar to the original attack, but very different in its capabilities and the way it, it operated. So it targeted a different uh, DLL, but again, on the Orion software platform. So it was still all limited to that Orion tool, which is another interesting detail there that might provide some information as to what levels of access these threat actors had and, and so on. But uh, lots of speculation that can go on there. But it is basically in very sophisticated and highly stealthy web shell. I'm not so sure if I would categorize it as a web shell because technically the reason a web shell is called a web shell is because it's a you know web API essentially that calls a shell typically like bash or PowerShell or exe dot, you know, or I'm sorry, dot cmd dot exe, something like that, some shell, and you communicate to it over a web script. And so typically what you'll see is like a PHP or a JavaScript file that has been infected that allows an attacker to hit a particular path that then gives them the ability to run arbitrary commands to that shell. Now, in this case, it's the same up until you get to the point of the shell. And so in this case, when you communicated with the infected API endpoint and you, you passed your particular parameters, in this case, the parameters were not just standard, you know, run this command or something like that. It was actually a C-sharp binary, a set, actually it was not compiled yet, but a C-sharp code that was uploaded to the server. And then the server would dynamically execute that code, compile it, and dynamically execute it into memory. And so what this allowed the attacker to do is, for example, on a server, when you have a web shell, it's pretty easy to spot them in certain ways because you can see, hey, my web server's process is now spawning bin dash. Why is my web server spawning bin dash? That's a problem. You can look out for that. In this case, that's not going to happen because they are dynamically executing in memory and they're running it as a function of the main web server's code. And so in this case, it's, it's very troubling because 
you wouldn't have those standard process-based detection mechanisms as well as you wouldn't have any artifacts left on disk because there's nothing dropped to disk. You don't have to drop results to disk and then read them. You don't have to do anything. This is all in memory and it's all transactional. So as the C2 communicates, runs and executes your C-sharp, passes you back results, and it's basically your standard HTTP communications, and that's really all that you could see there. And so, like I said, threw us all for a loop because it's, it's hard to say what, the, what this was used for. It's very difficult to detect. Obviously, there were some indicators that were passed out in the reporting. So again, kudos to the defenders who put this out. But ultimately, when you're actually looking at the host itself, it is very challenging to, to identify that you've been infected and to scope out what has been done due to the lack of artifacts and lack of network communications that would you typically see with a web shell. Yeah. And so a few of the recommendations that we've had in the, you know, that I've had over the last few weeks from the IT ISAC uh, and a number of other places and security teams that I've talked with is a few of the things they're doing is after this whole event, A, they're going back and they're, they're looking again at their log retention policy, right? A lot of organizations didn't have logs back as far as they needed in order to see if they'd truly been infected and when the start of that was. So they are going back there. They're analyzing that. Peter, what are a few other things that you'd recommend for security teams looking to at least gain better insight into this in the future? Well, I think understanding what your servers are doing. I mean, obviously, it's it's easy to look in hindsight and say this now. So obviously, there's a giant asterisk over everything we're talking about. We have the gift of hindsight here. But understanding your network and understanding what hosts in your network have high visibility is and high levels of access is critical. You know, it's very difficult for defenders and, and network administrators to do this. I understand that. Um, but it is a core part of security is understanding which hosts on my network are highly privileged and have broad access into lots of things like the network or like domain controllers and things like that. You know, paying attention to not just your standard servers, but all of the other tools that are now being built into modern networks due to agile and, and, and SaaS-based approaches where we have this constant updating and constant management, constant querying of, of statuses and things like that. You've got all this management basically that's being automated and all these tools that you're bringing in to automate this management, but you're not paying attention to sort of the new behaviors observed on there. And that's where we go back to behavioral detections. In this case, it would be very difficult to identify this attack through anything but a behavioral based approach. And so understanding, hey, why is my host that is I know is, is, is a critical asset in here why am I now all of a sudden seeing what looks like potentially benign due to the domain's history and reputation? Why am I seeing DNS tunneling? That is not, that's not okay from this particular host. If I saw a laptop doing this, I probably would also look away and say, yep, that's just normal stuff. But if I saw my servers doing this, now we've got a big problem. And so that context is critical to bring into the picture. I think you you hit on it, right? And we've even talked about it. Well, what if we do more testing on our updates? Right. Like, OK, you're right. We've been slacking. We, you know, we do some basic testing, make sure it doesn't break anything. And then we push the update. Well, maybe we do more security testing on them. And then we go back to this and it's it's testing to see if it's in a sandbox and it's not running until it gets into prod. So it comes back to you have to have come back to the MITRE attack framework. Are you analyzing the things that could hit your business, your line of business and, and be critical and, and then start implementing things that will help mitigate or at least give you visibility into so that your security team can take action when it is detected. So thank you, Peter, for that. Now, we had a couple comments. I had Manuel Villar. He said, thank you. 
You said, Joel, you and your team have provided great details. And I got to give the shout out to Peter, you and Brett. Uh, I'm really just guiding the conversation. Thank you guys for being here. You know, I know a lot of people have read it in articles. They maybe even dug into the FireEye releases. But when you hear somebody like Peter and Brett really dig into it, it just clicks and makes sense. And that's why we're going to be here once a month sharing these with you on our monthly cyber look back. So our next one is on, quick shout out and plug for us, is on February 4th of February 2021. Next question is Al, and he says, has there been any evidence of infection of supernova without there being evidence of activation of sunburst? I.e., if a company has checked boxes on sunburst, can one feel comfortable that they're okay, RE, supernova? Now, Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, but supernova has been seen in the past before anybody knew about sunburst, correct? No, I don't know about that, but I can tell you that it's unclear whether there's a connection between the two. And so, although I believe it was delivered in the same infected update, it's hard to to understand where the connection is between the two. And so I would not try to draw any conclusions based on one that then bleed over into some conclusion that you're making about the other. So just because you're not seeing supernova traffic, but you are seeing sunburst traffic, you know, don't make any guesses here. It's very difficult and it's quite muddy at this time what the actual connections are. And I would treat them as two separate incidents. That's out of an abundance of caution, however. And so if you aren't seeing traffic on at all in, in either of those, it, again, the conclusions that you draw need to be independent of each other, I, I would say. Yeah. And I, I think that's great insight. And, you know, I tried to Google it real quick to see if, you know, I wanted to say that supernova backdoor had been seen in the past and, and or it was at least similar to something we've seen in the past, but Google's so inundated with solar wind sunburst and supernova digging into it will take some time. So Al, I hope that answer helped and yep, please Take them each at their own, run incident response on each indicator, and still do your due diligence on, on each of these. A couple more comments. We had Courtney Greeley. Hi, I hope you're doing well. She said, very insightful and valuable use of time with some of the top experts. Thank you all. And then Al responded, hey, great input, guys. So that brings us kind of to the end. We have a quick update with Brett on what have we seen in the last 24 hours. So, Brett, over to you. Update from the last 24 hours. Ready to go. Yeah, so just we thought it was all over. Of course, things couldn't end with that last thing that Peter was mentioning. Now there's news potentially that, you know, JetBrains is also involved in this. So New York Times published an article claiming that intelligence agencies are investigating TeamCD, which is a software testing and deployment tool that is used by 300,000 companies worldwide and 79 of the Fortune 100 companies. And JetBrains is a company that's based in the Czech Republic. Uh, I believe it was created by three Russian nationals, and they have offices in Russia. So there was some speculation of whether JetBrains was involved in this. This is my take on it. TeamCity is a deployment server. What I assume is that the actor that did perform this activity exploited their TeamCity uh, server and was kind of exploiting their DevOps process, right? And, you know, I think this goes back to not really like, I don't think it's really a threat of TeamCity being exposed, but more of just going back to DevOps uh, perspective and, you know, introducing security into that process, making sure that when people submit PRs, that that code is reviewed. And during that whole continuous process, before TeamCity even builds that compiled code, there should have been a review. And there should also be static analysis using like, you know, tools like uh, SNCC or, or other uh, security analysis tools that can perform code analysis, make sure that no vulnerabilities or backdoors are introduced. Well, and that's funny you say that because Team City actually does static code analysis as well, right? So it's it's interesting to see this. But I, I think another lesson learned just from this update in the last 24 hours, and thank you, Brett, is that 
attackers are going to start targeting the SDLC or the software development lifecycle. So this is where I know they're saying DevSecOps, but you have to take security into account into your development lifecycle at this point. You just have to, and it has to be ingrained into the culture of your organization. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for your thought leadership and thank you for this excellent cyber look back. You know, it's been much appreciated. Thank you all for participating as well. Just a few names real quick, Gene, Barry, Melissa, Luke, Albin, TJ. Also Jacqueline has a quick comment. She said, this was a great brief. She needs to get Peter's wall art because it keeps changing. It's really cool. So thank you, Peter, uh, for bringing a really cool office. And um, thank you, Jacqueline. You got it. Thank you, guys. Thank you all for being here. I appreciate it. Real quick, Peter Radzinski has a SANS Cyber Intel event coming up. So quick shout out for him. That's going to be February, January 22nd. So you'll have another talk by Peter at a SANS event. It's free to register. So please check that out on January 22nd. And then we will have our February Cyber Look Back on February 4th, 2021. Once again, thank you all who joined us. If this is relevant and worthwhile to have your analysts look at, please forward this to your teams as your guys' insight is invaluable. So Peter, thank you for joining us. Brett, your insights were invaluable. I appreciate both of you and we will see you all next month. Thanks so much and have a great rest of your week, everyone.